Welcome to the Truth Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Harrison. The Truth Matters Podcast is a production of Grace to You, the Bible teaching ministry of John MacArthur. And my guest today on the Truth Matters Podcast is Executive Director at Grace to You, Phil Johnson. Phil, welcome back to the Truth Matters Podcast. Thanks, Daryl. It's always good to be here with you. How you doing, man? How you feeling? I'm good. I'm good. Phil, I got to tell you, I was really amped uh, to do this episode of the Truth Matters Podcast with you. I, I always enjoy sitting down with you, man, and, and chatting things over uh, about John uh, and, and, and his material, his library, and things of that nature. But this episode is a special one uh, for me, and we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But we're here to talk about John's sermon titled, Hacking Agag to Pieces. Hacking Agag to Pieces, one of the best sermon titles ever. It's a great sermon, too. That's one of my all-time favorite John MacArthur sermons. When people ask me, you know, what should I listen to, I'll give them a list of four or five, and that's always one of them. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about that, man. Can you tell us, because as, as I understand it, this sermon is not part of a sermon series from John. Is that correct? Is, this is That's this sort is, of correct. Okay, so. Uh, yeah, this Go ahead. He he preached this sermon at the very end of uh, 1993. Mm-hmm. It was the day after Christmas, mm-hmm. 1993. Mm-hmm. And uh, the week before that, he had done a Christmas message, uh, like a themed Christmas message. But this was the day after Christmas. And attendance is often low on those holiday weekends. And so I think he didn't want, he was in a series on 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't want to take that back up with so many people off, you know, visiting relatives and all that. So he did this one time special message, which actually is kind of linked to the the Second Corinthians material. The Mm -hmm. Second Corinthians material, he was in a section where he was talking about the conscience uh, in the the beginning of uh, Second Corinthians. And at the same time, just finishing work on his book. The Vanishing Conscience. Mm-hmm. That had just been two weeks before sent mm-hmm. off to the publisher. Mm-hmm. And um, it had a chapter on Agag, but it also had the material from Second Corinthians. Right. So in, in John's mind, all that stuff fit together. It was thematically linked, but it wasn't part of the Second Corinthians series. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, because one of my questions was, if you could give us the backstory on where that sermon came from, because the title is just fantastic. And, and and I said earlier, just a second ago, why I was so excited to talk to you about this sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces, because it's very personal to me in a way, because this is the first sermon that I ever heard John MacArthur preach. It's a good one to start with. Yeah. Uh, because you mentioned that he preached a sermon at the end of 1993, very first sermon I'd ever heard John MacArthur preach. It was my in, initial introduction to what an expository sermon sounds like. Uh, you know, growing up in the quote unquote black church, expository preaching is not the norm there. It's all about homiletics. It's not necessarily about the hermeneutics. But um, another reason that this this uh, sermon means so much to me is because what John talks about, we're going to get into this in just a second, but one t- what John talks about in that sermon is something that I can personally relate to, uh, especially when it comes to the matter of sin. Uh, and in my, lo- my own life, um, I've committed some really big sins, some really big sins. Matter of fact, what I enjoy doing when it, in a lot of my personal Bible study is I like to study what I call the big sinners. I like to study people who sin really big, people like Abraham, uh, Saul, David, uh, Peter. I could go on, Samson, uh, for example. Uh, but when I came across this sermon here, Hacking Agag to Pieces, you don't listen to this sermon 
and remain the same. I mean, you just don't. I mean, here we are 27 years later, and I'm still uh, gripped by the content uh, of this sermon. So can you help us understand um, uh, what's the sermon essentially about? What is John getting at in hacking Agag to pieces? He's he's talking about the mortification of sin. Scripture mm-hmm. says, mortify that sin that's in your members. And that's sort of the starting point for the sermon. And it does come out of the book, The Vanishing Conscience, mm-hmm. so which, as I said, John had just completed the draft and sent it off to the publisher. And there was a chapter in there about the mortification of sin. And when I was listening to some of John's material uh, in the process of editing that book, I came across a place where he referred to Agag and um, uh, as a, as a illustration mm-hmm. of someone who who doesn't really mortify. His mortify means put to death. Mm-hmm. Someone who doesn't really kill his mm-hmm. sin, but thinks. I can tame this sin. You know, I can domesticate this particular favorite sin and and still be okay. I just mm-hmm. tone it down a bit, keep it under control, keep it a secret or whatever. And John was was using the illustration of uh, King Saul with Agag, 1 Samuel 15, I think it yes. is, mm-hmm. where uh, Saul defeats the Amalekites. And before the battle, the Lord tells him, slaughter them all. Mm-hmm. Don't let any of them live. And there's good reasons for that, by the way, because the Amalekites were a, were a murderous mm-hmm. tribe that continued to trouble Israel. And, and in fact, it was just one generation after Saul, while David was uh, king of Israel, the, uh, the Amalekites had recovered enough from this great defeat under Saul Saul's regime, where they came and actually kidnapped members of David's family. Mm-hmm. And so they they illustrate this sort of troubling, hard to destroy, evil influence. Mm-hmm. And so the Lord had told Saul, put them to death. And instead, Saul kept Agag, perhaps as a trophy, perhaps because he, he thought it somehow enhanced his stature and power as a king to have captive this king who'd been king of a of a violent and and uh, you know warrior nation, right. and um, Saul kept him alive, which was disobedience to what the Lord had commanded him. Right. And uh, at the end of that chapter, then it says uh, that Samuel the priest took Agag. After he rebuked Saul and told, mm-hmm. that's when Saul learned the kingdom is going to be taken from you and mm-hmm. given to David, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, Samuel took Agag, and Scripture says he he hewed him in pieces mm-hmm. before the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's the word that's used both in the King James and the New American Standard. He hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord, which right. means he basically took a sword and. Yeah, you know, you mentioned um, uh, the word illustration. I I have several questions for you today, Phil. Matter of fact, a lot of the questions come from actual quotes of John from that sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces. And one of the things that John says in this sermon is this. He says, quote, that the story of King Agag is a tremendous insight into God's attitude towards sinners and his holiness and wrath against sin, unquote. Now, the question I have for you is what happened to that God today? What happened to that God in the church? The yeah, we God, don't, right. The God we, who still, who still is the God who is holy and who still cannot tolerate sin. What happened to that God? Today? Right. We don't hear him. We don't hear, hear exactly about right. him much. 
That's so, exactly right. That's, I think, one reason this sermon stands out. It's uncharacteristic even for John MacArthur to, to spend that much time in the Old Testament. You know, he's a, a New Testament mm-hmm. preacher for the yeah. most part. But it is true that uh, John, when he needs to illustrate a truth, rather than go to some you know, story or whatever that has nothing to do with Scripture, he'll look for a biblical illustration. Mm -hmm. This is a classic example of that, where, you know, the command to mortify your Mm -hmm. sin is a command to deal decisively with it. And there's no better illustration of how the Lord deals decisively with wickedness than the slaughter of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And in fact, that that's a troublesome passage for a lot of people yeah. because it, it's, you know, people will say, well, this is an act of genocide. So how can God countenance that? It's actually an act of divine judgment. Saul had an order from God to, to do this. And so the sword with which Samuel ultimately killed Agag is the executioner's sword. Uh, which yeah. is not unusual at all, either in Scripture or in human history. It's interesting that, uh, you know, when that passage of Scripture is talked about, it's often talked about in such a way that the question is raised about the character of God, that God is somehow deficient in his judgment in executing his judgment. Right. Uh, you know, how do you respond to someone who would say to you, well, uh, you know, who wants to serve a God like that, who would wipe out an entire, you know, genus of people. Well, if you understood the character of the Amalekites, you would see why that's, it's the same reason that uh, any, any nation like uh, all all of the, the uh, allied nations in World War II were determined to get rid of Hitler. Right. Because he was an evil man exercising his power for wickedness. And the Amalekites were that kind of wickedness on steroids. Mm. They just loved slaughter and mm. devastation. Mm. They were like human locusts. They would go through areas and and uh, conquer peoples and tribes, and not not in order to possess the land, but just because they loved to leave it lying waste. Mm. And they had been a perpetual threat to Israel, and so the Lord commanded Saul to utterly get rid of them. And it's what he should have done because he had a clear command from the Lord to do that. It's, it's not a that doesn't legitimize or countenance real acts of, uh, you know, that that level of brutality. But this was the Lord commanding them to to execute his judgment against sin. And Saul should have obeyed. You know, I asked you a second ago, Phil, whatever happened to that God, uh, you know, today, especially in the church, that God who judges sin, that that holy God who cannot tolerate sin. I have a similar question, and it sort of is uh, extended from a quote uh, that John mentions in the sermon where John says this. He says that the story of Agag, again, is an excellent illustration analogically of the sin that remains in the believer's life. So a similar question to Whatever happened to that God, I want to ask you, whatever happened to sin? Whatever yeah. happened to sin in the church? You don't you don't hear about the God who doesn't tolerate sin, and uh, equally, you don't hear about sin, period. Whatever happened to sin in the church? Yeah, it's one of the points John makes in that book, The Vanishing Conscience, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, sin is a concept that even Christians today don't like to right. talk about exactly or focus on. Uh, and here's a here's a point of interesting history. Uh, I said John MacArthur preached that sermon, hacking Agag to pieces, on December 26th, the day after Christmas, 1993. Mm-hmm. Two days prior to that, 
Norman Vincent Peale had died. Oh, okay. Norman Vincent Peale was, you know, the power of positive yes. thinking. Mm-hmm. He was the mentor of Robert Schuller, who wrote, you know, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. And in fact, there's a large section in um, The Vanishing Conscience, John's book, that critiques Norman Vincent Peale and his teachings, all written prior to Peale's death. But mm-hmm. then Peale died on that same weekend that mm-hmm. John MacArthur preached this. And... Um, uh, you know, uh, it, I, I would say Norman Vincent Peale and and that type of sort of quasi neo-orthodox preaching, it all sounds good. It sounds positive. People love it. People respond to it. Uh, that has done more damage mm-hmm. to the church and our perception of God and what he thinks of sin uh, than m- maybe any other kind of popular religion in our lifetimes. Yeah, you know, that comment actually leads into, you know, the next question that I wanted to ask. And again, it's, this is dove, dovetailing off of another quote from John in Hacking Agag to Pieces. I mean, the, the sermon is just absolutely amazing. And I just I just cannot let go of the fact, I don't want to sound like a broken uh, record here, but the personal impact of this sermon on my life cannot be understated because I know my own depravity and I know how huge a sin I'm capable of committing apart from the grace of God and, 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 and his, his grace upon me to, to walk in his truth. But John said this in the sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces, he says, quote, sin is not killed when it is merely covered up. You have not done your duty with regard to killing sin until you have confessed it and forsaken it covering covering it only makes it worse yeah. unquote so can you talk about what true confession and repentance of sin looks like because i think going back to the question i asked you a second ago on why we don't talk about sin anymore um is it because it is one of the reasons that we don't talk about sin often in the church anymore because we've lost a sensitivity to or respect for God's holiness in that he demands total separation from the practice of sin. So we don't really have a clear understanding of what confession and repentance are anymore because we don't tie that to God's holiness. Can you speak to that for a second? Yeah, I think you're right that all of that goes together. The The idea of downplaying the wrath of God mm-hmm. against sin because we don't want him to seem mean mm-hmm. or too decisive mm-hmm. in his judgments and, and all of that. So we've changed the notion of God and made him less holy. We've also, you know, monkeyed with the definition of sin and made it less sinful, right. you know, yeah. which Scripture says one of the reasons for the law is to show us the mm-hmm. sinfulness mm-hmm. of sin, how mm-hmm. evil it really is. Mm-hmm. And in the church today, you just don't have much of an appreciation of that. That's why there are movements in the church to say, look, it's okay to to harbor homosexual desires mm-hmm. as long as you don't act it out. Right. Uh, and one of the things John is saying in this 1993 sermon is if you harbor the desire, even if you don't act it yes. out, you have not mortified that yes. sin. Uh, and John is borrowing there, by the way, from John Owen and his great book mm-hmm. on the mortification of mm-hmm. sin. Well, I think what you've got in that sermon and in the corresponding chapter in the Vanishing Conscience book is a kind of condensation of John Owen's great treatise on the mortification of sin, uh, just so, sort of boiled down into a single chapter and made easy for people to read. You know, Phil, I think about how John's been in the pulpit at Grace Community Church now for 51 years. And I think about um, 
you know, his legacy, once he steps down from the pulpit, his legacy is going to be so multi-layered. I mean, I don't even know where to begin, but I think one aspect of that legacy is going to be his consistency in shepherding his flock against sin and, right. and, and, and being courageous and bold and speaking about sin and leaving, leading holy lives. Uh, but I think about that part of John's legacy, but I also think about other bold preachers like Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd Jones and others who were they were they planting churches today? I don't know that they'd be tolerated very long in, in the pulpits of many churches today because yeah. they were so boldly speak they so boldly spoke out against sin. That's right. They they wouldn't be tolerated. And Spurgeon actually recognized that. There's a famous passage from Spurgeon where he says, "Look, you you love to read about Luther and <clears throat> Calvin and some of the great men of God of the past, but you don't want them. You don't want people like that in your pulpit." today yeah, yeah. and he compared it to uh, you go to the zoo and you you look at and admire the lion but you know uncage that lion and yeah. y- you don't want him around right um and he compared you know bold preaching to that sort of lion-like um you know power and and a real threat to people who who love sin and People don't want that. It's like the Apostle Paul said it would be. They want their ears to be tickled. They have itching ears. Yeah, exactly. I I tell you, as I listen to you, Phil, I'm thinking about how, uh, you know, listen, we as Christians are beholden to a faith where its Savior, its God, was nailed to a cross. And yet we act as if when it comes to this matter of sin, we act as if we act as if Christ just fell asleep in a lazy boy. Uh, that that he he just went to heaven in his sleep, that he wasn't nailed to a cross, that he wasn't beaten and spat on and um, uh, mocked uh, even on his way to the cross. Um, so so t- talk to us about John's sermon as it relates to uh, John sermon hacking egg to pieces, as it relates to our uh, lackadaisical. That's the only word I can think of. Our lackadaisical or our apathetic approach to Christ's suffering on the cross, you know, his passion, his suffering on the cross for our sins. And we, we say that so casually, it's like bumper sticker material, T-shirt material, right? Jesus paid it all. But when you listen to Hacking Agag to pieces, John, uh, John places you there. He places you there at the cross and reminds you of what your sin cost God. Right. You know, can yeah. you talk about that for a second? Yeah, you know, I think most people don't really even have a, a, a very realistic concept of what Christ suffered on our mm-hmm. behalf. Mm-hmm. We think of the the crown of thorns and the whip, you know, and, mm-hmm. and all of that is grotesque. There was that Mel Gibson movie a few years ago that, that you know, showed, I think, to some degree, very realistically what uh, the process of crucifixion would yes. look like mm-hmm. to a victim. Mm-hmm. And yet... Despite all of that, the worst thing Christ suffered was the outpouring of God's wrath against sin, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a, a kind of suffering that we can't even comprehend. But if you, if you realize, uh, in order to pay for your own sin, you would have to be punished in hell yes. eternally yes. and still never quite pay the bill. Right. Christ somehow took all of that, the wrath of God, the full outpouring of God's wrath, on behalf of his people, and um, and willingly suffered that, um, and, and and you know a measure of of 
how how serious that was for him is seen in Gethsemane the night before where mm-hmm. he sweat blood mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because his soul was troubled even to the point of death yeah. just by the thought that right. on the next day he would suffer the full wrath of God against sin. You know, uh, another quote that John uh, makes in that sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces, he says that every honest Christian will testify that the tendency to sin is not erased by becoming a believer. We still derive pleasure from sin, John says. We still derive pleasure from sin. So that, that's that, is that that Romans 7 battle that Paul is talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's exactly what it is. Can that, you delve into that a little bit? Why do why you think it is that we— we still derive pleasure from sin. Why isn't that? Why isn't that battle brought to an end when we come to faith in Christ? Yeah, I don't know. It it uh, makes me look forward to yes. glorification mm-hmm. when that won't be a, mm-hmm. the case anymore. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, and it is troubling. I mean, I'm I'm in my late sixties now, and uh, I remember thinking as a new Christian, a teenager even, that uh, some of the things that would that tempted me then I would eventually outgrow that the yeah. time would come when I would be sanctified enough that, you know, I didn't get troubled by sin just, you know, selectively on a selective basis. That's true. But if you look at sin in general, I, I you know, I can testify that as a 67 year old man, my heart still resonates with what the apostle Paul wrote in Romans seven, that I am nothing but a wretched man mm-hmm. who who can't seem to, to break that that you know desire for things that are sinful, wicked. You know, I think about uh, 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 what Paul says here in First Corinthians uh, fifteen fifty six. He says that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That ties into something else that John said in his sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces. He says, quote, when we were saved, there was a crushing defeat of sin, but we still have remaining sin. There are some Amalekites running around loose in everybody's life. We all have our Agags. Yeah. We all have our Agags. Uh, and and again, this, this sermon, because of the analogy that that John uses it in the story of King Ahag, Agag rather and our own uh, sin just penetrates to me personally because again um, I know me when I when I sin Phil I get my money's worth and 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 this sermon meant so much to me in bringing me back to a point where uh, I am taking my sin seriously even what because we have a tendency right to index our sins to categorize our sins and judge certain sins as being more egregious than others. But God doesn't look at sin that way, uh, right? Even the smallest, what we would call the smallest sin would have been enough to send Christ to the cross. Correct? Yeah. Well, think about the original sin. Adam basically disobeyed God and ate a piece of fruit that was, he was forbidden to eat. Mm-hmm. In that one act, the entire universe of evil was unleashed. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how much, evil there is, even in the smallest sin, we need to see sin that way and think of it that way. And, and what, what that sermon and, and the text mortify the sin that's in your members, what that encourages me to do is realize that those sins need to be dealt with mm-hmm. uh, decisively and firmly and e- even 
violently. Mm-hmm. I mean that in the in, in the spiritual sense that, as Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Right. That's a pretty extreme measure. Yeah. And of course, he's not saying literally right. that you should mutilate your body, right. but he's he's using uh, language and terminology that shows how seriously we need to see the issue of sin, mortify mm-hmm. that sin, put it to death, uh, and and really no measure is too extreme, no and no sin is too small to to deal with, um, and. You know, we need to revamp our thinking. And, uh, you know, we tend to forget that on a daily basis. Yeah. We need daily, constant reminders yes. to mortify the sin, put to death every day. Uh, and that may be part of what Paul meant when he said, I die daily. I mean, yeah. he was subject to literal death every day. But but I, I think he's clearly from Romans 7. We know he's dealing with sin in his own mind and heart. Covetousness, he says, is his besetting sin. Uh, one of the notoriously hard um, sins to to kill anything that takes place in your mind because yes. you carry that temptation around with right. you, and um, yeah, uh, if we don't see it as seriously as God does, we're going to fail. You know, you uh, you're segueing into another quote from John that I want to go to next, uh, Phil, in the sermon. Hacking Agag to pieces, John says this, he says, sin is not killed. And this goes to your point about mortifying. John says sin is not killed when it is only internalized. Sin isn't dead if you can still ruminate on the pleasure of it. We deal with our sin courageously when we strike it at the head. So this is what you're going back to with the text that you just alluded to. Your right eye, if right arm affinity, your right hand affinity, your right eye, uh, the gospel calls us to some very drastic measures in dealing with our sin and mortifying our sin. But let me ask you, Phil, what would you say to someone who would ask you, well, how do I get there? How do I, let's say, yeah, there's a sin in my life that I just, I'm hanging on to. I love that sin. Like John uh, MacArthur says here, I desire pleasure from that sin. Um, How do, how do I get to the point where I don't desire to do that sin anymore so that I do desire to mortify it. Let, I'm not even getting to the practical aspect of how mortifying it looks like. How do I get to the point to where I want to more genuinely want to mortify a sin in my life? How do I get there? You have to, you have to choke out that appetite and feed more righteous appetites for one thing. And uh, I think that's the, that, that's the probably the most important key to sanctification, mm-hmm. that you fill your mind with Scripture, mm-hmm. meditate on whatever things are pure, whatever things are good, and so on. Um, so it's a matter of, you know, basically reprogramming your mind, mm-hmm. be renewed by the— Romans 12, too. Yeah, renewing yeah. of your mind, yeah. um, which is a, a constant and actually lifelong task— mm-hmm to have to do it. And meanwhile, we've got our culture throwing at us images and billboards and and things designed to provoke covetousness, right. the sin that uh, Paul says he he struggled with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a constant battle and until you recognize that you 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 can't put your weapons down and and rest and say you know, I've achieved this. Paul says at the end of his life, it's not as if I've achieved. He, he, he hadn't reached the goal, but he says, I press on. Yeah. And that's how we have to think. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, man, what you just said there at the end, I think it's a great question to, I'll just personalize it to myself. Just ask ourselves, am I pressing on? 
Am I pressing on or have I given up? Have I given up in this area, this sin area of my life? Have I, have I given up or am I pressing on? Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, as we, we prepare to wrap up on this episode, uh, Phil, one last question I have for you. If, 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 uh, if, uh, if I were to ask you, why should someone take a few minutes out of their day to listen to this sermon, hacking Agak to pieces that is so convicting, that is so confrontational, that is so bold, that is so unapologetic in addressing the sin, the remaining sin in our life. Um, why is that sermon relevant to me today? Why should someone pull the car off the side of the road or take some time out at home or while they're in the car listening to hacking Agag to pieces? If, if they know that this sermon is going to bring them face to face with the reality of sin in their own life, why should I bother listening to that? Because that's what we need, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Scripture says if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Mm -hmm. Judgment is coming, and you can either deal with your sin now or it will be dealt with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a a frightening thought because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. Mm -hmm. We don't hear those things, Mm -hmm. as you pointed out earlier. Uh, In the church today, those truths tend to be suppressed and silenced, and it is to our detriment as individual Christians, also collectively as the church. The church today has a very poor testimony, and and to a large degree, it's because we have failed to deal with our own sin seriously enough. Well, Phil, I want to thank you again for joining me today on the Truth Matters podcast. We've been joined by Phil Johnson, Executive Director of Grace to You talking about John MacArthur's sermon, Hacking Agag to Pieces, which I encourage you to go listen to. Go to gty.org, plug that in the search field, just search for Hacking Agag to Pieces and listen to that sermon. You will be blessed by it. Thanks for joining us today on the Truth Matters podcast, and we will see you next time.